Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. This Sunday, we celebrate the two-year anniversary or birthday of Christ's Covenant Church. I'm not sure. Is it a, is it a birthday or an anniversary or, a, you know, what do you, which one do you go with? Anniversary, yes. So our two-year anniversary. Uh, and um, in thankfulness to God for how he has brought us together, uh, established us, given us an air-conditioned uh, building to be in. He's given us elders and deacons and uh, many uh, saints. I thought it would be worthwhile to give uh, a brief history of our church with an eye to how we fit into uh, the broader story of church history. So uh, we're going to try to fit yeah, 2,000 years into about 25 minutes. So consider this kind of the rough and ready family history um, <laughs> of our church. And yes, I am omitting many, many things, which you can ask me, but I'm happy to talk about anything. Um, so please do. If there is something I gloss over or you, what about this? Uh, please do ask me. I, I'd love to, we can chase rabbit trails. I, I enjoy doing that. Okay. The, the canon history of Christ's covenant church begins now. On August 24th of 2012, Joe Stout, contacted Dave Hatcher, pastor of Trinity Church in Kirkland, about starting a church in Lewis County. Now, uh, Joe, was this an email? Was this a phone call? Do you remember what this? It was an email. Yes. So when they write the, they're going to have to explain, you know, what email was to people a thousand years from now, because they will have no idea, right? So, uh, so Joe emails Dave. This is 2012. And it would not be until May 23rd of 2021, nine years later, uh, that the church would be formally constituted. Two years later, and here we are. God has given us uh, a place to worship. There's a Christian school here, a congregation of about 120, and there are uh, now 91, now, now that uh, Elijah Espidal was born, 91 official members, 46 adults, and 49 children. So we might have to do a tug-of-war, adults versus children, <laughs> uh, on Sunday. We'll see. Uh, just to give you kind of a frame of reference, reference here, right now in America, uh, the majority of churches are composed of 75 people or less. That's, that's the median congregation size in America. And uh, so for God to give us this kind of growth in uh, just two years is really um, a great blessing. Um, and it doesn't always happen, and we're just, we're just very thankful uh, for that. Now, um, all of you know the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land in which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And it is really this commandment that we are seeking to honor when we tell the church history story. You know, uh, the fifth commandment applies not just to individuals, but also to institutions, to tribes, to nations, and especially to churches. So if we want our days to be long upon the land of Centralia, uh, it is good for us to make sure we honor our father, our mother, uh, those saints that have gone 
before us. This is something that God actually commands his people to do, to remember things. Uh, If you forget something, uh, that is a moral act, right? God commands us to remember things, to even, you know, uh, write them on the doorposts of our house, so to speak. So uh, just as it was important for the Hebrews to tell their children the story of the Exodus and the 10 plagues and God's miraculous deliverance every year at Passover. So also it is important for us to remember the many saints who have gone before us, uh, without which we would not be here. Think about that. Without the, the Christians before us, we would not be Christians, right? Without them, we might be on our way to hell. That is a, kind of a terrifying thought when you think of all the possible things that could have not happened and then maybe you wouldn't even have been born, right? It is uh, the grace of God that any of us heard the gospel, and there are innumerable people who we have never met that made the hearing of that word possible. Uh, The very fact that right now uh, we all have the Bible probably on our smartphones and access to scripture and books and doctrine at our fingertips is really, I think, impossible to try to explain to someone living in the first century, right? Try, think about trying to explain the iPhone to a first century Jew, right? What is the internet? What is electricity? What, what's a podcast, right? What, try explaining YouTube uh, to a, a first century person. They don't even have like the mental furniture for, for something that is so ubiquitous to us today. Um, it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That contending for the faith once delivered is a task that the Holy Spirit has empowered the church to do for 2,000 years. And every single, single one of us will one day be able to trace in unbroken succession how that faith was handed down to us across the centuries. One day, in the new heavens and new earth, you will get to meet and shake hands with and hug and maybe kiss those people who God used as his human instruments to bring about your eternal salvation. As my old pastor, uh, Doug Wilson, is fond of saying, uh, God loves to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God loves to use crooked sticks sticks to draw straight lines. Um, And that is really the story of church history. It is very messy. It's very complicated. There's a lot of sin. uh, And often both sides in a church dispute are wrong. Uh, But nevertheless, we're still here. The church of Christ continues to prevail. Uh, The gates of hell uh, will not win out against us. Okay, so with that as sort of kind of preamble setting the stage, let's start to trace our lineage from the year 33 A.D. to present-day 2023 A.D. We'll start at the beginning. Um, If if I could have printed something out for you, uh, I would give you what I'm about to tell you now. And so what I'd like to do is divide uh, 2,000 years of history into four eras. And this is a gross oversimplification, of course, but I think it will help us have just some kind of divisions to mark out when things uh, happened in history. So 
four eras. If you want to write this down or try to remember it, I'll go through, I'll go through these multiple times. Uh, but the four eras of church history I want us to look at are the early church, the Middle Ages, the Reformation or early modern era, and then what you would call uh, fourth kind of late modernity or um, kind of late modernity down to the contemporary era. So early church is basically the first 500 years of church history. We could say it's kind of from the apostles to the fall of Rome in 476. Uh, And then the Middle Ages is kind of that 1,000-year chunk from 500 to 1,500. And then you have, of course, uh, the Reformation. And I think for us as Americans, it might be helpful to think about this time period from basically 1,500 or 1,517, if you want, until uh, 1776. There's, there's maybe a more easier number for you to remember, but uh, most history books will say like 1500 to 1750 is kind of the early modern era. And then you have everything after that. So 1750 or uh, 1776 up until modern day. So those are the four eras, early church, middle ages, reformation slash early modern, and then late modern. All right, so let's start in the early church. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and thus began the age of the apostolic church. Um, If... uh, Technically, uh, the church begins with Abel, the first martyr, but that would, be, that would add a lot more history. Uh, but, uh, you know, the kind of church that we're a part of today, we could say, had its birthday at Pentecost. The book of Acts is our earliest narrative of, of church history. And in it, we see the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea, then into Samaria because of persecution, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, Uh, Really, the narrative of the New Testament, especially of Acts, begins in Jerusalem, and where does it end? Does anyone know where Acts uh, 28 ends? Was that? Rome. Yeah, so Paul in Rome uh, on house arrest. So from Jerusalem to Rome. This is a very significant uh, geographic movement of the gospel. In less than 40 years, the gospel would reach the ends of the earth such that the Apostle Paul could say in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. So in 60 AD, Paul writes, Colossians 1.23, that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. He says likewise in Romans 1.8 that the faith of the Romans was spoken of throughout the whole world. And that was in 57 AD. At least that's when I take Paul as writing Romans. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen. He prophesied this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and elsewhere in the Olivet Discourse, that, quote, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, The end referred to there is not the end of, you know, the time-space continuum. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the old world in 70 AD. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, the gospel went to the entire world. Uh, However, uh, because of persecution and uh, 
uh, various wars, right? Uh, as if you guys know what was happening in Rome around this time, it was just turmoil. Uh, there's the year of the four emperors and, and so forth. Um, there's not a lot of written records outside of the New Testament from those years immediately following the apostles. So, uh, you know, some of the earliest things would be the, the letter uh, uh, of Clement to the Corinthians, and I think that's somewhere in the, the hundreds. Um, and, and that's kind of on its own. There's a few other early church things. If you want to uh, Google for the apostolic fathers, you could see what writing we have from there, but it's, it's pretty scant. We don't have a lot of information. It is really not until Eusebius, uh, who is really the, the father of church history, Eusebius, uh, he lived in uh, 260 to 339, so we're already you know, 200 years after the apostles. It's not until him uh, and the rise of Constantine that we have the first written history of the church. Uh, so he's writing 200 years after the death of the apostles, and Constantine, Constantine has just kind of put an end to the overt persecution of Christians in the empire. So you have, you've got you know, 200 years where there's a lot that we kind of have to piece together and conjecture about and don't know exactly what, what happened. So uh, some key events of just what happened in those first 500 years. Well, uh, a lot happened. Uh, most importantly, the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation were hammered out. Uh, we have from this era the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed, all of which deal with these doctrines and which really come to define what the church is. The first 500 years of the church were spent defending and defining the basic claim that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, he's fully God, and he's also fully man, and then trying to reckon from the, the Christ event, from this great truth, what does that mean about who God is? So now we have that God is one and that he is three, and how do we talk about that? And, and you know, wars are fought over this. You know, empires split over the doctrine of the Trinity and the natures of Christ, okay? So these things that we totally take for granted that are just basic, like if you're a Christian, you believe these things, uh, many people died uh, defending. The most uh, notable theologians of this era, uh, what we call the church fathers, are uh, as follows. So let me just kind of name drop some theologians for you. So in the West, so in the West you have kind of the Latin-speaking folks, and then in the East you have uh, the more Greek-speaking and writing folks. And this is going to become a little bit of a problem when they're trying to do a really specific doctrinal work and uh, try to do it when you're actually speaking two different languages, and then try to be unified as a church when there's a diversity of tongues. So there's a whole host of arguments about, you know, when we say that God is one essence, you know, what do you mean by essence or nature or substance or person? What even is a person? Uh, and imagine trying to do that with people who speak a different language than you, right? So th this is a really challenging thing to do. So in the West, some of the big, the big fathers are uh, Ambrose of Milan, uh, Jerome, Augustine of Hippo, probably you know, the, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, uh, and then Gregory the Great, so that's in the West. And then in the East, uh, you have Origen of Alexandria. He's actually really kind of the earliest of all the church fathers, Origen. Uh, then you have Athanasius, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, John Chrysostom. 
So if you need some names for you know, future sons, uh, you know, plunder these, these church fathers for their names. Right? Um, in terms of political significance, it was Constantine's Edict of Toleration in 313 that made Christianity a you know, legally tolerated uh, religion in the empire. Uh, Constantine himself would later be baptized and, I think, truly converted to Christianity. So uh, where does our church uh, fit into this? Well, our church holds to the Apostles' Creed. We confess the Nicene Creed every Sunday. Uh, And we have also in our documents the definition of Chalcedon. And therefore, we consider all of those people, those church fathers I mentioned, um, as our spiritual ancestors. We owe them uh, an enormous debt for working out some of these really, really difficult uh, doctrines. Um, It is these saints, these theologians and pastors that did what Jude says. They contended for the faith so that it could be handed down to the next generation. So of the three kind of major divisions in the church today, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, this is something we share in total, you know, we share this in common with them. So this is why we say they're all Christians, right? Even though we differ with the EO and the, the Roman Catholics on various things, we all believe in the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, uh, salvation by grace, all of those things. Uh, so we should hold in high regard uh, these fathers in the faith, you know, read their stuff, uh, and trace our lineage back to them. Because this is really an era uh, that we can all agree on. And often when we're debating with Eastern Orthodox or debating with Roman Catholics, debating with people outside of our tradition, when we both go back to an authority, so we go back to scripture, of course, but also when you go back to any of these church fathers, these are all people that the theologians hold in high esteem. So you want to say, you know, look, this is what Augustine says about salvation. And that actually carries a lot of weight with people when you are um, arguing with them across the aisle. Okay, Um, this leads us then to the Middle Ages, where you have both uh, the rise of Christendom and then the first real major split uh, within the Nicene uh, Church. Let me grab my water real quick here. All right, so the Middle Ages. This is that blank you have in your mind. You don't know anything that happened during the Middle Ages. This is most Christians, right? We think the church started in 1517. Um, So the Middle Ages. Uh, The Middle Ages could be further subdivided into early, high, and late. So let's walk through these kind of three sections of the Middle Ages. The early Middle Ages runs from basically the fall of the Roman Empire, so 476, unto uh, the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, uh, who is crowned by Pope Leo III um, around 800. So 476 to 800, early Middle Ages. Uh, During this time, this is when Islam happens. So Muhammad, you know, claimed to have lived sometime, I think in six, around 670s or something he was born. Um, I, I could be getting some of the dates wrong. Uh, on him. But basically, you have the rise of Islam and the Arab Empire. And this is going to be kind of the primary uh, thorn in the side of the church, you know, besides us fighting amongst ourselves, uh, for the next many hundreds of years, okay? So this is a really big deal that Islam is kind of uh, claiming a lot of similar theology. Uh, you know, it's an Abrahamic religion, so to speak. and uh, And a lot of the 
the theologians would even look back and see Islam as kind of God's uh, disciplinary rod on the church. Um, that's at least what I, I think. Uh, for our idolatry. So this is also a time in which uh, images of Christ, icons, become pretty common across uh, the Christian world. So this is when you really have uh, people, you know, what we would call worshiping images or praying to pictures of Jesus. This starts to happen here. And there's a number of iconoclastic controversies. If any of you guys know the Second Council of Nicaea, so there's the first Nicaea, the good Nicaea, and then the Second Council of Nicaea, which is the kind of seventh of the uh, seventh, uh, seven ecumenical councils. That's when they say, yeah, uh, images, veneration of images is okay. If you know anything about Islamic theology, uh, they're very anti-images, right? Uh, you, you, you see their architecture, you see their buildings, you're not going to see pictures of Muhammad or something like that. Uh, so there's this kind of uh, spiritual reaction. There's all sorts of uh, things going on here, but you have the rise of Islam during this time. Then you come to the high Middle Ages. Uh, so this is kind of where Christendom peaks, uh, the power of the papacy also kind of peaks, and you have uh, really some of the greatest theological work that was still ever done to this day was done during this time. So now you're no longer being persecuted. There, you know, Christendom is established. You're kind of like the big you know, kid on the block, and that means you have time. You have time to think about things, to study scripture without being you know, persecuted. Um, and, and this uh, then develops uh, some of the greatest theology uh, that was ever written. At the same time, you have the Great East-West Schism of 1054. So if there's a date to remember, it's 1517, Reformation kind of begins, and then 1054. This is another really important date, because this is really the first split in the church, and it's uh, uh, a split of East and West. So that uh, conflict over Greek-speaking and Latin-speaking and then cultural differences, like you know, people smell differently when they eat different things, right? There's all sorts of uh, political differences. There starts to be some differences in theology and practice. And in 1054, this all kind of bubbles and comes to a head. And then there's a split between the Western church and the Eastern church. So up until this point, you know, there's no such thing as a Protestant. So what you and I believe, you know, probably no one thinks what any of us think in this room in the way that we do back then. It's hard to even imagine the way they thought about the church and the state and what it means to be a, a Christian at this time. Um, we just have so many different categories than they did. So East-West uh, divide, and they really divide over issues of church government and papal authority. And then uh, more technically, what's called the Filioque Clause of the Nicene Creed. So the Filioque and the Nicene Creed is, and from the Son, is this little addition that talks about whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from just the Father, or as the Western adds in the Filioque, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, Filioque. So the East uh, rejects that. Uh, I think they probably more so reject that the West added it without the East's agreeing to it, and then there's differences over whether they actually disagreed with the substance of, of, of the doctrine. Nevertheless, you know, modern Eastern Orthodox typically will defend uh, the removal of the filioque as you're messing with the doctrine of the Trinity. So you start to have some of these kind of technical theological issues that split uh, entire empires. Uh, but the biggest one really is uh, the East 
does not want to accept that the Pope of Rome has preeminence over all the other churches, right? So this is something that Protestants can relate to. Um, I, I think it's really useful here for us as Protestants to look back and see some of the points of agreement and disagreement we would have with both sides in this debate. So, uh, you know, if, if you were living at the time through this and you were, you know, the kind of Protestant you are now, you would be kind of frustrated because both sides are going to have points you agree with and points you disagree with. So let me give you some examples. Um, in the West, so now when I say West, think Roman Catholic. When I say East, think Eastern Orthodox, Constantinople. Um, so the West did not allow priests to marry, whereas in the East, almost all priests were married men. So where do Protestants, who do Protestants agree with here? The East, yes. <laughs> we believe the, the, the clergy should be married men, actually, uh, and that forbidding them to marry is going to create some problems, as the Roman Catholic Church will experience. Right? Um, another, another point of difference. The West used unleavened bread in communion, and the East used leavened bread. Where do the Protestants fall on this? Well, here, uh, yeah, so the Protestants, they're like, okay, you know, you can do either one. Uh, it's no big deal. <laughs> we say you can go either way. Both, both are legitimate, uh, you know, and we still have some, some Protestant churches do one. You know, our church does leavened, uh, but it would be okay if we did unleavened bread. Um, in baptism, the West had a diversity of uh, legitimate modes of baptism, so they would baptize by uh, immersion, effusion, pouring, sprinkling, etc., and usually only once, whereas the East uh, fully immerses people, even babies, uh, three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if, if it's a baby, if, you, if you've ever seen an Eastern Orthodox baptism. So um, the, the, Pro the Protestants um, are kind of divided here. Uh, many Baptists actually believe that immersion is the only legitimate mode, and the Reformed churches all reject that. And so uh, they're kind of split here between uh, East and West. Uh, the West taught the doctrine of purgatory, and indulgences, whereas the East denied the existence of purgatory or any kind of you know, treasury of merits that can be dispensed to the, state, to the saints. So, of course, Protestants were on the, the side of the East here. Uh, the West added the filioque. The Protestants, because we're from the West, we maintain the filioque, so uh, here we're, we're on the side of the West. And then really lastly and most importantly, uh, the West at this time made very exalted claims about the Pope of Rome and his primacy over the other bishops, claiming he had absolute authority over the entire church. Uh, the East, of course, rejected this and held that the five ancient patriarchates of Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, together offered leadership to Christians, and here the Protestants are more on the side of the East. Um, I also mentioned the issue of icons, and that's something where, you know, on both sides, they're, they're doing it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you're kind of stuck. Um, it's interesting when you read some of the Protestant arguments against the Roman Catholics, because they're going to say, you know, you aren't a true church. Well, the clapback <laughs> is, well, what about the East, right? So uh, you already have this kind of precedent if you are a, uh, a Protestant to make a lot of arguments that the East was already making over purgatory and, this, and the treasury of merits and some of these doctrines. So you, you actually can reference some of them because that carries uh, a bit of weight. Okay. Um, 
Some of the other noteworthy events of this time were the Crusades. Uh, if you want to ask me about that, you can. The Crusades happen. Um, also, you have, uh, more interesting to me at least, the invention of the university. So, you know, universities are a explicitly, consciously Christian invention, right? Secularism did not invent the university. It is a medieval Christian invention. So the universities started out as cathedral schools for training clergy, kind of what we would call seminaries. And uh, in 1096 was when the University of Oxford began. And that is still going to this day. That was, uh, so that's the oldest English-speaking university in the world, Oxford. And it's going to be from within these universities that really the greatest theologians who ever lived are going to come, and the seeds for the Protestant Reformation are going to be sown here. It's going to be in the university where a lot of the the energy and thought behind the Protestant Reformation is going to to come from. Um, A few of the the most important and influential theologians of the Middle Ages were uh, John of Damascus, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, Peter Lombard, and then my personal favorite, uh, Thomas Aquinas. So that is uh, the uh, high Middle Ages. So you kind of early high is when it peaks, and then late is where we, where we are going to now. Um, and this is really the period of time that um, teaches you about why the Reformation happened. So you already can kind of see there's some issues in the church, right? The Pope is really getting on his high horse. Uh, you know, there's pictures of Jesus in all these places, there's now this place called Purgatory, and you can kind of, you know, you can go on a crusade and, you know, buy off time in Purgatory and stuff. So a lot of things that uh, I think rightly to us sound kind of crazy are pretty normal. And, you know, the head of the church is saying, you know, uh, you can get time off in Purgatory if you go on this crusade. So what you have then in the late Middle Ages is the beginning of uh, the Renaissance, uh, Renaissance Humanism and the Renaissance is going to run for basically from 1350 to 1650, um, so it'll, it'll run through the Reformation. Uh, but the Renaissance and Renaissance humanism really revived the study of ancient texts, especially in their original languages. So now they're going to rabbis to learn Hebrew so they can actually read the scriptures in Hebrew rather than from the Latin Vulgate. Same thing with the Greek New Testament. Well, uh, you know, let's go back and see what the original text actually said. The, probably the single most important humanist for launching the Reformation was a man named uh, Desiderius Erasmus. Who, who has heard of Erasmus? Erasmus, yeah. So um, he, he's, not, he's not a Protestant, uh, but a lot of uh, historians are fond of saying that Erasmus, uh, Erasmus birthed the egg that uh, Luther hatched or laid the egg that Luther hatched, uh, which is also kind of a funny image. Uh, But (laughs) uh, Erasmus is really responsible for the Bible that you have in your house. Okay, So Erasmus uh, compiled and edited, really for the first time, um, the the original Greek of the New Testament into one uh, book. At the same time that uh, Johannes Gutenberg's printing press is revolutionizing the way books are printed. So, you know, the timing of all of these things coming together is really unique in the history of the world. 
So the way, the way that you and I think about Scripture uh, is pretty wrong uh, because we are so used to thinking about Scripture as a book. Scripture is not a book, okay? Uh, you think about what Scripture is. It's this revelation from God, and then it, it goes through this process of being handed down through prophets and then, you know, uh, uh, people uh, making edits to it, and then, you know, a scribe copies it out handwritten. And if you've ever tried to handwrite a book... Uh, you know, are you going to do that perfectly? <laughs> Probably not. And so uh, the idea of having the entirety of Scripture between two covers that is identical to someone else is like a radically new idea. Never in the history of the world has that happened. You know, maybe one exception, Sinai, and uh, Moses smashed those, right? <laughs> There's you know, two copies, and, and one goes in the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, this is a really momentous event in human history for both the way that information is given out, the way that we consume information, where as mostly you're think, uh, you know, you don't need to read. You don't have a Bible. You can read. If you want to hear the scriptures, you got to go actually hear the scriptures read in the church. You know, in the early church, they would have, you know, copies, you know, chained to the pulpit. <laughs> and that was the one Bible for the community, and most people couldn't read. So uh, I really cannot overstate the significance of the mode that uh, Scripture is now going out to the world in the original tongues for uh, really the first time in a long time. Um, uh, This revolution in access to the Scriptures and then their translation into other languages by Wycliffe, Tyndale, Erasmus, Luther, others, uh, began to really rock the boat of what we might call the Western power structures, especially uh, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, One example of how humanism really undermined uh, papal authority or the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there's this uh, interesting guy named named, uh, Lorenzo Valla. And uh, so I don't even know if he's strictly speaking a Christian, but he was a humanist and a very good uh, text critic. Uh, text critic, and what he did, and so this is 1440, so quite a ways before the Reformation, but he basically, he looks at this document called the Donation of Constantine, and the Donation of Constantine is this document that was alleged to be given from Constantine, the emperor, you know, in, in the fourth century, giving the pope uh, authority over the entire church and the power to actually um, select secular rulers in the West. So we all think in terms of distinction between church and state and authority, uh, this is not that, okay? So, you know, this is the big tension between church authority and state authority, and these are going to come to a head in the Protestant Reformation, and we are to this present day still dealing with the aftermath of how the church and the state relate to one another, right? America is a grand experiment in trying to do this. So back to uh, Lorenzo Valla. So he's this great Latin scholar, and he basically debunks this document that the Pope has used to kind of prop up their authority as coming from Constantine. And it's proved and kind of recognized by all to be a forgery from, I think, like the 7th or 8th century, because he recognizes the Latin that they're using did not, it's clearly anachronistic. So, uh, and now pretty much everyone agrees, even the Roman Catholic Church, this was, this is a fake uh, document, but they had used it, you know, popes had appealed to it to 
to make these really uh, audacious claims about church authority. This, of course, brings us then to the next big split in the history of the church, and this is really the various reformations of the 16th, uh, 16th century. So now we're moving into the third era, Reformation or early modern times. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this part because most of you guys know the history, you know, Luther uh, banging the 95 Theses, all that stuff. Uh, but if you have questions, we, we, can, uh, we can talk about this more. But kind of the first phase of the Reformation runs from uh, 1517, so Luther's uh, 95 Theses, through really the death of Calvin. Uh, so that's kind of your first generation of reformers. So this is Martin Luther, Zwingli, Bootser, Philip Melanchthon. And so you got a lot of Germans, and then you got some Swiss uh, going on. And then you have the second generation of reformers, uh, people like uh, Calvin, Peter Martyr, Vermigli, Heinrich, Bollinger. So now the French, uh, Italian, uh, Vermigli, he's an Italian uh, theologian. So uh, these theologians are kind of representing... Uh, when you read Reformation history or Reformation documents, uh, they're almost always dedicated to the prince or whoever is the, the ruler of that region, right? That's the dedication because they're writing to them. You can imagine uh, we don't, so let's say we all don't like the Roman Catholic Church that's ruling Centralia with an iron fist. And we appeal to uh, uh, Governor Inslee that... Our Protestant religion is the true religion, and they are idolaters and corruptors and abusers and immoral and all these things. And we really have to prove our case to the civil authorities so that they allow us to worship the way that we want to worship, to practice uh, Christianity the way that we think the Bible tells us to do. So you have the reformers really working. You have to work within this civil structure. Otherwise, you know, it could be treasonous, right? This is why you have uh, heretics being killed, not because the church is just killing them all. It's actually the civil magistrate because you're disturbing the peace. You're upsetting uh, the peace of, of the area. Okay, so th after that first wave of reformers, then you have them trying to kind of sort through the mess. So they break with Rome, and then now they're trying to figure out Okay, how do we do this, right? How, what structures do we need to put in place? Okay, now we got to like train a bunch of pastors, and then how are we going to organize this? Not to mention, there's a bunch of wars happening at the same time. So like Zwingli, who uh, really we have a lot more in common with than, than someone like Martin Luther, he's a Swiss man, a soldier who dies on the battlefield, you know, holding his sword. So, you know, that's a reformer you want to follow, right? right? Right there, Zwingli. Um, this theological development really peaks in the 17th century when there's all these reformed confessions being written. And this is when the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 was written, and that's what our church essentially holds to. So we use the American version from 1788, which makes a few changes. But on the whole, we are the direct theological, spiritual descendants of the Westminster divines. This is largely um, uh, British theologians. There's some Scots in there as well. Um, and that's a whole story in and of itself. Okay. Um, uh, let me say one last word kind of about the Reformation before we get to just modern day. So um, although we credit Luther with really kicking off the Protestant Reformation, we really have a lot more in common with someone like a, a Zwingli or a Calvin uh, because 
uh, Luther, as you know, uh, you know, there's a Lutheran church now. And that's different from the Reformed church, from other churches. So at the Reformation, you really have Luther kicking it off, but then Luther is going to kind of demonize anyone who disagrees with him. Basically, if you disagree with Luther, you are, you know, a servant of the devil. So, you know, Calvin, <laughs> Calvin is like, you know, I respect Luther for what he did, but I wish that he would just stop talking, right? Uh, and Luther is going to hold some, some I think, very incorrect views on uh, the sacraments and the nature of Christ, and he's going to have a bunch of issues. And then later reformers are going to say, yeah, thank you, Luther, for, for some of what you did. But he really, um, you know, his personality, I think, really got in the way of, of the, the Reformation being unified. So this, this is the other problem. They're kind of unified against Rome, but then they're just arguing really vigorously against themselves. So like Luther and Zwingli are going to throw down theologically over what happens in the Lord's Supper when Jesus says, this is my body. And, and they're going to be, uh, you know, Luther is going to be calling Zwingli names like a, you know, like a school child. So it's rather embarrassing. Okay. Uh, now to kind of late modernity, contemporary era. I'm skipping a ton of stuff, but I want to kind of get to where our church fits into kind of the modern landscape. Perhaps the biggest difference between our church and the churches of the Reformation is that we are Americans. <laughs> We're Americans. We are, uh, you know, a nation of immigrants that are coming from a bunch of different uh, theological streams. So when the thirteen, uh, you know, when there's thirteen colonies, even before the nation was was a nation, uh, you have state churches. You've got an Anglican. You got a Presbyterian. You got a Congregationalist church. So you have a few different Protestant churches that are coming to uh, the new world and establishing communities and then eventually are going to come and form a nation. So um, that in itself makes us a really odd bunch. So to this day, we're still a overwhelmingly Protestant nation, right? Uh, Roman Catholics do not dominate here like they do in other places. At the same time, there's a lot of differences between us. And that's really what, what I'm going to talk about for just the last few minutes here. Um, Americans take for granted that all religions should be tolerated and treated equally. Uh, but this is really a novel and stupid idea in the history of the world, and one that is not actually possible. Uh, so there's always some supreme principle by which you are going to organize and rule society, like what kind of laws are you going to have? And secularism is really the current false god of America. It was not always this way. So uh, to situate then our church within that broader picture of church history, what I want to give you is um, a prioritized order in which I think we should identify ourselves. Um, so, you know, I am Aaron and I am a Ventura, right? This is, that's my family, the Venturas. So when you talk about your, your, you know, your religious identity within the many, many, many different possible religious identities out there, here's how I, I would suggest, and this might be the most controversial thing I say tonight, this is how I suggest um, you describe yourself. And, and really, here's the caveat. Uh, I am just describing what I am and what the church is doctrinally on paper, which I know uh, some of you are actually not yet. Um, so first and foremost, one place where we can all agree, uh, we are first and foremost Christians, okay? 
That means, what do we mean by that? Because Mormons say that too, right? Uh, We believe in the same Apostles and Nicene Creed uh, as present-day Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox. So we believe that Jesus is God, fully God. We believe in Trinitarian baptism, and this excludes other so-called Christian sects. So, you know, Aryan Christians, Mormons, the J-dubs, etc. So we're, we're Christians, and if you want to say, you know, we're Nicene Christians, they're going to be like, what's, what's a, nice, a nice Christian? Um, we're we're uh, Orthodox historic Christians. Second, so that's our first identity, we're Christians. Second, we are Protestants, okay? Uh, that's maybe not very controversial, but that is just to signify that you're not Eastern Orthodox, nor Roman Catholic. We, re- we reject papal authority. Uh, and then third, uh, we are Reformed Presbyterians. We are Christians, we are Protestants, and then where on the Protestant tree are you? Well, at least I am, a Reformed Presbyterian. The Reformed part refers to our doctrine as in line with the magisterial reformers, so John Calvin, Westminster Divines, etc., and that is to distinguish us from the Lutherans, from the Anabaptists, from the Baptists, from the Methodists, and other non-Reformed Protestants. The Presbyterian part refers to our form of church government, which distinguishes us from those who believe in what we call Episcopal church government, or rule by a bishop, and that's you know Anglicanism, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, uh, and then uh, so that's one side of things. The really kind of hierarchical forms of government. And then you have the really democratic versions, which are Congregationalists and Baptists. And those, that's basically rule by the congregation. So uh, we, we kind of thread the needle bet, uh, between those two poles, Congregationalists on one side, Episcopal hierarchy on the other. Presbyterians are really the mix, the golden mean between the two. So Reformed Presbyterians, we believe the church is rightly led and ruled by elders, not a pope. Uh, nor bishop, uh, nor the congregation. And that is intended to provide both accountability amongst fellow church leaders, what we call presbyters or elders, and also gives the congregation a court of appeal, you know, if they don't like what is happening here. So there's actually a higher authority. This is really the big problem with a lot of independent uh, congregational churches. You might just have a senior pastor and kind of what he says goes, and then the congregation maybe can get together to overthrow him or something, but there's never like a higher court of appeal that has real spiritual power to discipline your pastor. So uh, this is where we believe, you know, Presbyterianism gives you the accountability for both the congregation and uh, the elders who are um, in charge of the church. While church government is not something that most American Christians really think about, um, it, it really is one of the most important dividing lines between denominations. It's how churches are governed. So we're Christians, we are Protestants, I am a Reformed uh, Presbyterian, and I hope that you become one one day too. Um, The hope is that uh, one day, really, um, in the future, that these various labels will no longer be necessary because the church will have achieved far greater unity than we have now. We are praying and believing for the day when Jeremiah 31, 34 comes to pass in full. And I'll close with this. It says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. May God hasten that day.
I'll close right there. Um, uh, if you need to leave, uh, you're welcome to leave. Otherwise, um, I will stick around and answer any burning questions you have, or even non-burning questions you have. Yeah, so the question is, what about the history of salvation by grace, especially uh, in the East? Is that right? Or, or, or yeah, in, in the East and West. Um, so maybe a, another way of thinking about it is, ask the question, do Protestants believe in salvation by grace? Well, you'd want to say, yeah, but also I know hundreds of Protestant churches that don't live up to that and are quite legalistic, right? Entire traditions that I think uh, stem from the Reformation that become highly legalistic, just like Rome did. And uh, the Protestants, you know, I think the best of the Protestants would maintain, um, as present-day Roman Catholics do, they believe in salvation by grace. Um, And... Yeah, well, they're going to they're gonna nuance that differently, and the Protestants are going to nuance that differently, too. So I would say, be careful of saying something like, you know, Roman Catholics believe in salvation by works. They don't. There are many Roman Catholic people, just like there are many Protestant people who believe that, and even hear a sermon and teach it. But in terms of, like, official church doctrine, that's, that's just not what they believe, and Um, a lot of the kind of anti-Rome or anti-us or, you know, a lot of it is just taking um, bad examples and then saying this represents that whole group of people, which as we know would be, is really unfair to do. You want to steel man your opponent, not straw man them. And I think the really, sadly, the best theologians in the Roman Catholic Church and the best theologians outside of it never really got to hash it out with one another. Often you had Protestants arguing with not the greatest of the Roman Catholic theologians who were genuinely maintaining things that are wrong and other Roman Catholics would disagree with them on. And, and same thing with the Protestants. When they say, you know, you hear a Roman Catholic ask about certain Protestant things, and yeah, I'm pretty embarrassed by what is called Protestantism, which... Um, you know, you look at America. Who, who thought that we would be the nation that thinks, you know, two dudes can get married? <laughs> okay. Like, that's embarrassing. And really, uh, Protestantism uh, contributed to that. Yeah, so the question is, what are some of the key differences between Reformed Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists? I'd probably zero in on two things. Uh, one would be baptism, of course. So, Presbyterians are going to baptize infants. Baptists are not. Uh, But what it really comes down to is a difference in your understanding of what the church is. And that's that's really the bigger issue uh, because baptism is directly connected to it. So uh, Baptists are going to even be hesitant about calling baptism a sacrament, um, whereas, you know, Christians throughout history have pretty much always said that that's what it is. And so they're going to want to call it an ordinance, and then they're going to want to, uh, they're also not going to have our form of church government where there's a group of elders that meet and are accountable to one another. Uh, Pretty much Reformed Baptists are going to all be congregationalist. So uh, it's kind of limited and isolated in each church in terms of the, the authority 
of it is just located in the church. Uh, and then they'll have kind of, you know, connections with other churches in their denomination, but there isn't the same kind of authority to, like, remove you or something like there would be in a Presbyterian structure. So it's the nature of the church and, and baptism and then your form of church government are going to be the two really big differences. And then as of late, like within the last 20 years, there's been a lot more dialogue between Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians, and that's actually how our denomination started. So our, our denomination, the CREC, started in 1997 as an attempt to bring together, <laughs> bring together Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians and see if there's a way we can work together. And um, it would probably go beyond your question for me to explain how all that has happened, but I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, Any time. Yes, Liesel. <laughs> what are the question was what are the Crusades? Uh, so yeah, the Crusades. The, the very short version is that the Crusades are when Christians wanted to retake the Holy Land. So you know Jerusalem is that area, which was presently under the control of uh, Islamic Turks, so M Muslims. And there was a number of crusades and a lot of fighting. And on the whole, I would say it was not uh, worth it. Yeah, the question is, what's the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance? I, I would probably say it really depends on who you talk to because some Baptists would be fine using them basically interchangeably. And then some would want to really... Um, they would probably say something like a sacrament. Um, they're th they think like Roman Catholic sacraments, wherein the, th the thing itself, you know, the water is communicating grace to you, or the bread is like, you know, magically communicating Jesus to you somehow. My guess is that that's part of why they don't like that language, because it is the same language that the Roman Catholic Church uses. They have seven sacraments, we have two. And that would probably be my best guess is if you were to ask a Reformed Baptist. But, you know, maybe ask a Reformed Baptist if there is any in here uh, why they do that. Uh, uh, probably the real reason why they did choose that in their confession was because um, it's something, it's a, it's a Bible word. Whereas sacrament is not like a word you can find in Scripture, just like Trinity. It's a theological word. And the Baptists were a bit more biblicist and wanting to just kind of use scriptural language. And ordinance would be something that, um, you know, is maybe in their minds seems more biblical than using this uh, uh, freighted word like sacrament that can mean, you know, it means different things to different people, um, very different things to different people. That would be my best guess. All right, I'm a, it's 8.30, so let me close in prayer, and then we'll sing uh, the doxology together. Father, we do thank you for um, the, the way that your Holy Spirit has led uh, the church and sustained uh, the saints for all of these years. I ask that you would help us to uh, continue to grow in our knowledge, in our understanding, and to be a light and a witness to you uh, for the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.